Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The United Nations is helping raise the awareness of the importance of language. The UN just kicked off the International Decade of Indigenous Languages. The declaration aims to improve global recognition of language revitalization, as well as increase resources, especially for languages most in danger. Tribes and Native organizations are using the declaration as a springboard to highlight their own revitalization efforts. We'll learn more coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Hundreds attended a virtual public hearing Wednesday about Wisconsin's draft environmental review of a $450 million plan to reroute an oil and gas pipeline. Danielle Kading reports Canadian firm Enbridge wants to move Line 5 after the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa sued the company to remove the pipeline from tribal lands. Lawmakers, labor unions, and the state's largest business lobby touted the 700 jobs that would be created. Republican Congressman Tom Tiffany says the project would generate millions in economic activity and tax revenues while providing affordable, reliable energy. Everything about this project is a win-win. Tiffany said it also honors the tribe's request to remove the line from tribal lands. Bad River Tribal Chairman Mike Wiggins rejected that notion. The only thing we have ever asked of the oil company is to get out of our water. And that has been uh, rejected. That has been disrespected. Opponents say the state's review doesn't adequately address impacts to water, wetlands, treaty rights, and climate change. For National Native News, I'm Danielle Kading. The president of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute says Alaska Native corporations should be eligible to participate in the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. President Dr. Rosita Worrell testified Wednesday before the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. The hearing examined the more than 30-year-old law's impacts and needs for the future. The law provides for the repatriation of Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. Worrell says ANCs were doing repatriation work for 20 years until a government accountability office report on NAGPRA changed that. The 2010 report found NAGPRA does not include Alaska corporations within its definition of Indian tribes. Collectors love Alaska Native material culture, and a lot of that was collected from all over the world. And so we found we started to do an inventory of all of our all of our cultural objects and museums, and we finally quit at, at when we reached almost a hundred thousand. And we were busy with doing repatriation claims, and we were very surprised, you know, when we were declared ineligible. We did a legal review, and uh, we thought that we should have been declared eligible, but unfortunately, uh, that was not the case. And in our region, repatriation claims came to all but a stop, except for our, our one regional tribe. Worrell says it's not only a loss not to be able to continue work of seeking the return of ancestors and objects, but there's also cultural hurt. In addition to halting the repatriation process, what was also halted was dealing with the trauma of 
of the removal of our ancestral remains, dealing with the removal of our sacred objects. So we were not able to continue the path that we had been on in terms of our cultural healing from, you know, from that trauma. So it had both the, you know, the administrative, operative kind of things, but it also had an impact on, on our culture. Worrell recommended the reburial of remains be allowed to return to where they were taken from and increased funding for tribes and museums. Other recommendations made to the committee, the administration of NAGPRA to move from the National Park Service to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, increased penalties for failure to follow NAGPRA, and measures to protect confidential tribal information. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and you may choose which booster shot you receive. More info at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Thriving Native languages do more than foster communication. They provide an immediate and lasting link to culture and identity. The United Nations acknowledges that link in its resolution to focus on indigenous languages across the globe for the next 10 years. The Indigenous Decade of Indigenous Languages Resolution also notes the fragility of many Native languages and the need to mobilize money and talent to revitalize them. In the U.S., dozens of tribes and organizations are using the U.N. resolution as a springboard to increase awareness of Native American languages. The First Nations Development Institute, which funds immersion programs, compiled what it says are best practices and other insights for tribes looking to bolster their languages. The state of New Mexico is considering legislation to offer Native language speakers full teacher salaries with or without a teaching certificate. As always, we look to you, our listeners, to share your thoughts. What will help your native language thrive? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Greensboro, North Carolina, is Anna Luisa Danio. She is the Program Director for Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages. Anna Luisa is a linguistic anthropologist of Peruvian and French-Canadian descent. Welcome to Native Record Calling, Anna Luisa. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And joining the conversation from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Howard Payden, Executive Director of the Cherokee Nation Department of Cherokee Language. Howard previously served as Program Manager and Facilitator for the Cherokee Language Master Apprentice Program. Howard, welcome to Native America Calling. 
Seal Sean Wado for letting us be on today. Sio. And finally, yet just as importantly, joining us from St. Ignatius, Montana, is Cheney Bell, the Salish Language Coordinator for the Salish Kalispell Culture Committee of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes on the Flathead Indian Reservation. Cheney is a co-founder and the board chair of Enkusum, the Salish Language School in R. Lee, Montana. Cheney, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, Sean. Anna Luisa, this is big news, obviously, a United Nations resolution to support indigenous language. When a high-profile organization like the UN makes this type of broad declaration, it certainly inspires hope among Native people. But I am interested to know what types of tangible resources can the UN offer to really benefit Indigenous language revitalization efforts? Thanks for the great question. Um, so basically what the UN is, is offering is a large platform to get the ideas out and get the urgency of this situation out. So um, as our listeners may know, according to the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the right to free expression and to access information in one's native language is one of the fundamental conditions for full empowerment of Indigenous people. Um, so preserving the vitality of those languages is very, very important. So what we've seen um, at Living Tongues, where I work, and many other organizations like us around the world, what we did was we started to form coalitions and partnerships. And so led by our colleagues at uh, Rising Voices, they formed a large worldwide coalition of groups like us to form um, this, this group that will work on these issues for the next 10 years on a worldwide scale. Um, and so that, that was a lot of preparation leading up to the start of the decade, which is um, just kicked off. And um, so we're seeing a lot of interdisciplinary collaboration, a lot of meetings and a lot of really great toolkits coming out of this coalition just from an early stage already. So we're um, Rising Voices organized this coalition with the UN to get all of us, many hundreds of us working on these issues, since we're all in our little niches, they're getting us all together um, to release new materials, toolkits and resources for people who need them. Well, that sounds really promising. And I'm interested, what types of challenges are indigenous languages facing? And it's not just here in the Americas because this is, you're talking, we're talking about indigenous languages across the globe, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so this issue is happening on a global scale. The loss of languages is affecting almost every single country. Yeah. And what kinds of actions does it take to safeguard an indigenous language? It takes many, many different types of actions. So it takes people with many different um, skill sets and backgrounds to make um, a language come back. So basically at Living Tongues, we work um, on the scientific side and the technological side. So we help with the documentation, the recording, the editing, and training people to get their materials online in the form of dictionaries and other types of digital tools. So we work on that, but we also, help train people and help offer advice for all the other um, types of work that can be done in language revitalization. So 
um, of course, teacher training is really important, important curriculum building and having in those curriculums, having the resources that the teachers and administrators need to actually use in the classroom. So there's definitely a, a lot of um, cross pollination back, back and forth between other organizations um, such as 7000.org. They work um, on online curriculum building for uh, different native languages. So th there's uh, a lot of people focused on that field. We're focused on building online dictionaries, um, which is a very, <laughs> very vast endeavor that we're trying to do on a, a global scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really like the name Living Tongue Institute that really summarizes what you folks do so well. And I'm interested because obviously these are really, really challenging efforts, right? To, especially with regard to revitalizing a language that maybe has, has faltered over centuries or generations. And I'm curious, what have been some of your most successful programs and what was it about those programs that made them work? Um, some of our both, uh, some of our most successful programs are really these close collaborations with communities where um, the communities really drive the projects themselves and set the goals and, and work with us every step of the way um, to document a language. So for example, uh, we have many active projects with our uh, staff in India. We're working on documenting a whole language family there called the Munda language family. And we're bringing a lot of those languages online for the first time and, and publishing some children's books and dictionaries for the first time in many of these languages that had um, no writing systems or whatnot. We've also seen um, some great um, progress here in the U.S. Um, we're, we are currently in a three-year partnership with um, the uh, Tutlo Saponi Monacan um, project that we're doing. So we've partnered with the Haliwas Pony Nation here in North Carolina, where I'm based, and um, we're working on a very large dictionary that will serve many descendants um, uh, from the Saponi and um, other tr other tribes in the area. So it's going to this online dictionary will serve um, people in North Carolina and in Virginia and in Ohio as well. So well, that's a really project, and we're seeing a lot of success. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's great to hear. It sounds really, really interesting. And I'm also interested. So you're working with these communities uh, across the globe. And how do you actually connect with these communities through your organization? That must be challenging to to make these um, make, to establish these partnerships. Yes, it definitely is challenging. Um, before the COVID life, we used to travel a lot <laughs> and, and work directly in communities and do a lot of the documentation in person and uh, recordings and, and trainings on the ground. Um, now most of our programs have moved online, but luckily um, we have, for example, a, a staff in India who um, this, our staffers are able to go out into communities and still make recordings and help uh, the community collaboration move forward in India. And everything else um, for example, our collaboration on the Tutelosaponi Monacan Living Dictionary, that one is we're working 100% online remotely to stay safe for COVID. I see. And Louisa, one issue that I see here in the U.S., we have more than 570 tribal nations, a wide range of native languages, and there are some communities where fluency rates are, are quite high 
you know, almost everyone speaks the language. Children grow up learning English as a second language. And then we also have communities where there are only a handful of fluent speakers. And I'm curious to know if one has to choose, where are resources and talent better directed toward native communities with high existing rates of fluency or communities with fewer speakers? That's a very good question. And it, it's hard to give an exact answer because I would say it really depends on the community and their goals. We've been um, amazed to see communities contact us regularly who they have lost their last speakers decades ago, and now there's interested people who want to revive based on recordings. So that's why we think it's absolutely crucial to make those recordings with the last fluent speakers before they pass on. And that's not an easy endeavor because um, there's a lot of work and planning and you know trust and agreement that has to go into that. So I'd say both are equally important. Um, some linguists uh, call that process a salvage documentation when you only have a few speakers left and you're trying to um, make a documentation out of it. But um, I think that it's very, very important because I know there's going to be descendants down the road who are looking for such materials to make a program out of it. And we see it, we see it all the time. Um, for example, we're working with um, the uh, Wokan, Woken um, Indian Nation in Cape Fear, North Carolina. And they're mm -hmm. also reviving their language based on archives. And so there haven't been any fluent speakers of Woken for over two centuries, and they're still working on it. <laughs> okay. They're still trying to get it done. Yeah, so it is okay. very important. What, when they're... Well, thank you for that background. Folks, if you have a comment or question for today's show, we are speaking with native language experts today. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Back right after the break. A new TV series explores the contributions of indigenous knowledge and the scientific basis behind traditional building materials, agriculture, clothing, and even cosmetics. We'll hear from the creators of Indigigenius and get a preview of the show coming up on the next Native America Calling. The Association of American Indian Physicians and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention remind you there are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States. You may choose which COVID-19 vaccine you receive as a booster shot. Getting the COVID-19 vaccination protects you, your family, and your community. More information at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Where will your native language be in 10 years? The United Nations hopes to ensure indigenous languages are better off in the next decade. And to support that goal, they've just launched the Decade of International Indigenous Languages. We're taking your calls. The number 1-800-996-2848. Before we went to break, we were listening to Anna Luisa Danio, and she was talking about working with communities on language revitalization efforts and the importance of recording the voices of fluent speakers. And, and Luis, I'm sorry, we kind of cut you off there towards the break, but please finish, finish your thoughts. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yes, I was just observing that uh, based on your question about what, what gets the priority, um, we should really prioritize recording the last fluent speakers if there are any in the community. And also we should, we should really prioritize 
um, empowering youth who are interested in these issues by making sure they can get media training and maybe, you know, get them interested in producing films and music and other content in native languages. Okay. Let's move over to Oklahoma now, where Cherokee Nation helped kick off the Decade of Indigenous Language Resolution. We have Howard Payton. Howard, why was it important for the tribe to mark this occasion? Well, Sean, it was, it was very important to us to be involved in it. Uh, one reason is, is over the years we have always gathered so much information from other tribes throughout the world, the Maori, the, the Hawaiians, um, this this different tribes that has helped us, and uh, so uh, when we started planning, we we pulled as many tribes as we could together that was actually building uh, speakers, and uh, we brought them together and and uh, did a, a a hybrid version of a, a a launch to the decade of indigenous languages. So uh, we had uh, people from our tribes from the uh, the Russian. Um, ranked their tribes to the, the Perdom language down in Australia. Uh, dif- this different places throughout the world came together uh, in Telqual, nonetheless, to uh, kick this off. And so it was an honor for us to be involved in it. And uh, it was an honor to kind of feel like we was given back uh, to some of those that, that has helped us so many times throughout the, the years. Well, it's, Really great to hear there's such a wide range of indigenous cultures all convening there in, in Tahlequah, no less. And Harold, you know, the Cherokee have such a rich history of documenting their language, the Cherokee syllabary. There was, of course, the Cherokee language newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix during colonial times even. Do you think those earlier efforts have helped with your present day language preservation work? Well, absolutely. Last year marked 200 years since the our our council had accepted uh, Sequoia's written language, and so uh, it is it is nice to be able to go back and and pull documents. We estimate this in institutes alone that there is about fifty thousand documents. We've gathered about fifteen thousand of them, or taken pictures of them uh, to start building you know a, a higher level of uh, dictionary, like Anna was talking about. Um, so we've We've came together to build a language corpus. Uh, so, but uh, in our communities, you know, there's there's probably uh, another hundred thousand in our our communities. There's, there's documents there uh, waiting for us to secure them, uh, uh, digitize them uh, for our our language revitalization efforts. Okay, and Howard, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe there are about two thousand documented fluent. Cherokee speakers, and I'm interested, how many other folks do you have that are partially fluent in the process of, of learning the language? So we we have uh, several different programs throughout our uh, language, revi- language revitalization efforts. We have a master apprentice program uh, that has 32 students in a given time, uh, and we're able to hit pretty uh, high proficiencies in language, you know, language fluencies. So, um, you know, and then we have immersion school. Uh, we just bought another immersion school. We're kicking off uh, a language village where we're pulling all of our, our uh, some of 
some of our elders and, and moving them into this village right next to our language center that we're building right now. So we'll have a whole language campus and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of things happening here in Tahlequah. And a lot of that is because our chief, Chuck Toskin, has, has just been incredible when it came to uh, language revitalization. So uh, there, there's not a, a, a first, you know, first, just an absolute number. Uh, we do know that there's probably about 500 out in the communities that understand the language but, but don't necessarily speak it fluently. And then we also have probably built uh, somewhere you know, around 75 to 100. I know we're graduating 16 right now from Master Apprentice every year, and then we're graduating, mm -hmm. about, graduating about eight uh, from our emergency school every year. So that's uh, about 24. And then, of course, we just purchased another emergency school. So uh, we're starting another one. So, um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe somewhere around 75 to 100 that the Cherokee Nation and its programs uh, have have worked on, and then maybe another uh, 500 out there that has happened organically. Uh, that uh, they their their learners are somewhat learners because they they grew up in them homes, uh, but they they understand language but don't yet fully speak it. So, and among those folks that are fully fluent Cherokee speakers, uh, do you have some some younger tribal citizens that fall into that category? Children, for example? Oh, well, we have some, some kids that starts, you know, started our emergency school. Um, we had a baby immersion. Um, my son is nine years old and he started uh, at eight weeks old. And, uh, and uh, I have two girls that, that started at three years old. So that that is uh, the case with a lot of families. Um, they they may not be hitting the proficiencies they would have been hit in the 1930s, uh, growing up in a home that just spoke Cherokee. But uh, they they can speak uh, rather rather good. Uh, so there is some some younger uh, first language speakers. I, uh, we have maybe five in their 30s, about 122 in their 40s. I think. Um, 389 in their 50s so there's these you know but the average the average age of a Cherokee speaker is 67 years old so obviously we have older Cherokee more older Cherokee speakers than what we do younger Cherokee speakers so so um, mm -hmm. we're really really uh, taking advantage of, of their time with us and we're uh, we even uh, started a speaker service program where we go out and fix um, you know problems that may be in their home or if they need wood or, or whatever, we're trying to make sure that we increase the quality of life of our Cherokee speakers because to be quite frankly, be quite frank, we need them. And so we need them to uh, be with us as long as, as possible. Uh, last year we lost 150 of our Cherokee speakers. And so we're losing about 8% of that population a year. So our tribe is doing everything we can uh, even in the medical field, uh, just any service that we have, we're bringing them all together to make sure that we fill in any gaps we can uh, for the Cherokee speakers. Well, thanks for that background. And, and so sorry to hear losing 150 speakers. And, and that does lead me to ask the question, how has the pandemic affected your programming? Have you had to 
pivot or, or, or change any program offerings or create some new innovations to to continue to, to teach these language classes and do all this outreach? So it was interesting. We we was doing a speak a turkey speaker role, and our last big event was in September of 2019. And as you know, coronavirus was just you know uh, coming in October, November, and then in our area uh, it hit around uh, February of 2020. Um, it was interesting that um, it was this. I believe our creator had helped us. Uh, were just months before we had the majority of the addresses for our Cherokee speakers. Uh, so immediately we started going out to their homes and bringing food to them because we didn't want them going to the grocery store and catching COVID. We was, we was worried. We started losing some speakers. Uh, we lost about 60 of our speakers to COVID. And um, as soon as the vaccination came along, we immediately, uh, there was the first ones we called. And so we started bringing mm -hmm. them in to get them vaccinated. It was surprising that uh, a population has every reason in the world not to trust the government and hospitals and that sort of thing. Uh, we we got around 70% of them vaccinated in just a couple months. Um, but I will say, you know, our, our emergency school, uh, we put that online for a year because it was being taught by first language Cherokee speakers. Uh, our master apprentice program, we did the same thing. Our translators went home. And so we started learning how to build these virtual platforms to be able to uh, still be creative and teach these lessons the best we can. So uh, we still have them. Uh, there were things that, that helped us. Um, in the middle of that, we also increased, like a, we was building a cartoon uh, that was called Inige. Uh, and um, and we also had a a uh, a, a uh, game that was made out of their, their characters where we could teach language and that sort of thing uh, uh, virtually the, the best we could. So uh, it uh, it allowed us or kind of forced us into uh, doing a deeper dive in some of the areas to use modern technology. Of course, we've always been able to you know for years been able to text or or that sort of thing in our language because Apple and, and uh, the other platforms has helped us put our language um, on, online. But um, we, uh, we worked and tried to get around the COVID the best we could, but we was uh -huh. fortunate that we had all that information of our Cherokee speakers just months before uh, COVID hit. Well, it's great to hear that you folks are able to utilize technology so effectively. And, you know, I've heard of some tribes even creating language apps. And I recently read that Google Translate is working with Cherokee Nation to offer Cherokee as one of its featured languages. So that's really excited, too, in addition to, to some of these other platforms. So it's it's really wonderful to hear how many innovations are, are coming out of uh, Tahlequah and, and the Cherokee Nation. Let's bring in our third guest today, Cheney Bell, who is joining us from St. Ignatius, Montana. Cheney, uh, the Salish and Kootenai, they also have a long track record of both documenting and teaching language. What kinds of challenges are you folks currently facing with your language preservation efforts? Um, yeah, this is Cheney. Um, you know, we are just like a lot of tribes where, you know, doing the best we can and 
we we face a lot of different challenges and with covid we it really those challenges got even tougher um we did some similar things you know with covid we our immersion school went online our master apprentice program our language apprentices went online and you know just recently we've kind of come out of that and our schools are are going back to school our children are back in the school and our um apprentices are um, back at our longhouse but we still have went online here and there when you know if there's a little outbreak or someone gets sick and so we're we're still kind of doing a little bit online a little bit face but you know the the challenges with our with our language in general <clears throat> no we only have uh, less than 15 fluent speakers and they're you know over the age of 70 um we we put you know we have about you know about 90 people actively working to to learn the language at different levels um we have about you know 80 youth in different programs including our immersion school public schools you know there's a lot of different things happening but when you only have less than 50 speakers you know it's it's difficult to um get those fluent speakers around the learners and so we've had to have we've had a lot of people in the middle you know between the ages of, of 20 to to 50 in that age age range that have had to learn the language as a second language and then be that in between the fluent speakers and the learner um, and try to bring our language back. And so that's been our most difficult thing is, is getting our people fluent and then turn around and, and teach the people that want to learn. Um, you know, we're doing our best. We've, we've done a, a lot of different technology things. We have apps and an online dictionary and um, lots of, we have thousands of hours of recordings that started in the 70s all the way. We still record our fluent speakers today. <clears throat> you know, so we're doing a lot of different um, preservation efforts. But the most okay. important thing we're doing is teaching people. Well, you mentioned earlier that there aren't a, a large number of documented fluent native speakers, native Salish speakers, I should say. And I'm curious, how do you folks define fluency? So the ones that we consider fluent speakers have been um, from the fluent speakers themselves, and and they've come in and they've worked with us. Um, there's always a potential that there are people out there that understand um, or haven't worked with us in any way, but we know these um, that are this 15 number are people that we know um, from other fluent speakers that have said that they're for sure fluent or they have come in and worked with us. Okay. And I'd like to ask the same question to Howard. Howard, they're in Cherokee. How do you folks determine or define fluency? So how we define fluency is that it's a, a first language Cherokee speaker. They, they spoke language from birth until uh, they, they continue to speak language throughout the course of their life. And they're recognized by their community as a Cherokee speaker. Um, as far as uh, what we recognize as a second language speaker, it has a lot to do with actual standards. And so if it's above uh, maybe actual standards, advanced, mid to high, uh, that's when we've noticed that the, the community starts recognizing them as 
Cherokee speakers. Okay, interesting. And I'm curious, Howard, what motivates somebody, an older person, say, a middle-aged person, what motivates them to learn the language if they've never had an opportunity to speak Cherokee before? Well, I think it's this uh, something that uh, the creator puts in their, their heart. Um, they come in, they get involved. Uh, what is interesting, our language is, is so pure. Um, there's a there's a vein of purity that uh, uh, that they interface with that they know that, that hey, this is something different. And so um, okay. they get around that and they uh, they navigate, you know, they they move towards it like a, a moth towards light. Okay. Folks, we're learning a lot today about native language revitalization efforts. And if you've got a question, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after the break. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. Scholarship applications are now open for the upcoming school year at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What measures are you or your tribe taking to ensure your language continues on into the future? With so many Native nations and communities spread out across North America, language preservation efforts are undoubtedly diverse. So please give us a call and let us know what's working in your neck of the woods. 1-800-996-2848. We've got a great group of guests today and they're talking about different language preservation and revitalization efforts. And, and one of those people is Cheney Bell. He is the Salish language coordinator there at Salish Kalispell Culture Committee. And Cheney, as I understand it, um, you became really passionate about the Salish language while you were a student at Salish Kootenai Tribal College. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I didn't uh, grow up with the language. You know, I really didn't even understand what it meant to be a Salish Kudlispet person. Um, I knew I was Indian, but not sure, even sure what that meant. And so, you know, you go through my younger age of just kind of living life. And um, I actually went to Haskell Indian Nations University right out of um, high school, and I met some friends there, and. One of them asked me, he's like, tell me about your people, you know, and I kind of spouted off some different things. And he's like, no, man, tell me about your people, your language, your songs. And, you know, I didn't know much. And so I kind of, I, right there, I, I left, came back home and was like, man, I need to kind of find myself, I guess. And I started, I took a language class at um, SKC, Salish Kootenai College, and um, right away, you know, when you start learning the language, it, it just does something to you. you. There's so much wisdom, so much knowledge, history, you know, within our language. It um, opens up your heart and a connection to your ancestors and to the creator. It's just really awesome. And it did that for me. And when that happened, I just knew, you know, I, I got on this road. And so many of our people are in that same stage. Are, you know, they don't understand 
completely who they are as a Salish or Cuddly Smith person. And language is one way, a really, really good way to to learn about who you are. First as a human mm-hmm. being, but then a Salish person. And so that's what it did for me. And, and the college was where that happened and, and just started me on my path. Well, Cheney, thank you for sharing that. It's a, a really, really heartfelt story and I'm happy for you. I'm happy for you and happy for your whole community that, that you're making these efforts. And obviously this has just had a huge impact in your life. And, uh, just again, just congratulations for, for making that effort and, and, and really just taking that, taking that first step and getting out there and, and learning something. And I know how challenging it can be to, to learn a native language. I, I'm one of those people that fall in that category of, uh, like, I know just enough to get myself in trouble, so I have to be <laughs> really careful sometimes uh, in that regard. So again, good job. I'd like to bring Anna Luisa back into the conversation. And Anna Luisa, what has been the development of language recognition over the years? I'm, I'm thinking that maybe there are more resources now than there were a few years ago, or, or maybe not. What's the What's the state? Well, uh, worldwide, there's still a lot of languages that don't have recognition, meaning that they don't have official status in their countries yet. So there's a lot of languages, uh, language activists who are working on that, um, in particular, people who are interested in human rights, um, people who are lawyers and whatnot. So there's, and I know Amnesty International has done a little bit on that topic as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, in Taiwan, for example, they're uh, making a lot of progress with the recognition of languages and making sure that there's more resources uh, being put out, uh, supported by the government for the different Taiwanese indigenous languages, for example. And here in the U.S., too, we start seeing that there's more and more support being given um, by grants um, through the National Endowment for the Humanities and, and many other government agencies. So we see a growing support, but there still needs to be a lot more um, support coming from the top down. But really what we're interested at Living Tongues is seeing the bottom-up grassroots efforts thrive because those people, just like Cheney, they're the passionate ones who are doing the work day to day. And they're the ones who are having you know, these life-changing experiences from working on their languages. Um, so that's what we try to do at Living Tongues is really try to support um, people like that with the resources and technology that they need to move their programs forward. Okay. Well, and I'd like to ask Cheney, Cheney, for somebody such as myself or, or any of our listeners today that, that aren't fluent and have maybe never taken a language class, what, what kind of advice can you offer a person that's just interested in, in learning their language? Yeah, you know, that's a, a question and a conversation I have probably daily, you know, just in the position I'm in now, I get constantly um, people from our, our tribe and um, tribal members and just peop- a lot of different people asking that, how do I learn? Why should I learn? And <clears throat> the first thing I tell them is, um, you know, everybody's at a different place in their life, and this journey is your journey. You know, um, you're going to do it for your reasons. Um, don't, you know, yes, listen to other people and the things that, that drive them and motivate them, but 
you got to find this within yourself, within your heart, um, and on this really on that spiritual level. And just I, I tell them, just start, take a class, um, and see for yourself where where you can go. Just take that first step to start learning. Because what I know, what I've seen, and what I know is that once people start that journey, um, they might not start and want to go to be completely fluent. But almost every single person I've seen start this journey changes them. To understand that connection with your language to your ancestors, to the creator, it's just it's a huge, huge connection that uh, so many um, indigenous people are missing. I mean, just in general, human beings are missing that connection back to the earth, back to the water, and, and understanding who we are as a as a human being. So, just encouraging people to take that first step, um, and and then to be there. And I've done everything I can to create safe places where people can do this. You know, from our immersion schools to adult language programs to to helping create teachers that have a good heart and are um, good with people, you know, and not demeaning or mean, but really to encourage and uplift our people. So just taking that first step and then just knowing that once that first step's taken, That's really inspiring the way you put that. It'll change you. Even if you don't become fluent, it will change you. And Cheney, I'm interested in knowing, you know, this UN declaration, does that do anything for your efforts there um, in terms of resources that might be available or support? You know, um, definitely it's, it's awesome. The awareness it brings worldwide, the awareness it brings to our communities. Um, and I really think about, I was thinking about, you know, the Crow tribe and some other tribes. I have some good friends in Crow and then, um, some other tribes that have a lot of speakers still, they really need that awareness. I always think if they would do a campaign to bring the awareness to their people, to their fluent speakers, speak to your children, um, billboards, just everything, you know, speak your language, um, that kind of awareness worldwide, the importance of, of your language. But then to the, to the tribes that are struggling that have a few speakers, or one, or maybe none, how important it is uh, to do things now. The urgency to record your fluent speakers, the urgency to take a fluent speaker and maybe one other dedicated person and pass that language to a younger person, one or two, keep that language alive from a fluent speaker to a young person, and then push that person to teach two people, you know, keep your language alive. Um, in whatever way you can. So that's how I could see it. Of course, I hope more funding and more networking happens. Um, but for us, you know, it's a, it's a day-to-day thing, and we're, we're just trying to take the knowledge that we learn and pass it to our people and to our children. Well, definitely there's that, that sense of urgency. This is not something to, to hold off on or procrastinate or, oh, we'll, we'll put that into a work plan in, in five years from now. No, this is something that, that communities have to definitely take action on sooner rather than later. Time is, is essential in this whole effort to, to revitalize and, and foster native languages in this way. And I, I'm curious in that regard, Howard, does it help um, 
to have a long-range plan for language preservation? How do you folks address that there in Cherokee Nation? So we started a, um, our first strategic plan in 2012, and we started um, doing one-year uh, plans, you know, five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20, and then up to a 100-year plan. Um, we recently redid that about three or four years ago. Uh, and, you know, some of the things that we thought that would take 10, 20 years, sometimes they, they, they don't take that long when you start having that plan. So what, what you know, to build a strategic plan is to, to have something ready and available so if, if uh, funding comes down, they can ask you, hey, what's your next step? Well, you know your next step. You know exactly what's happening. Your whole team knows what's happening. And so um, it immediately helps one another to to come as a sawadanto, you know, one one heart and uh, and go in one direction. So I think it's, it's really vital. Now, Howard, earlier you shared some statistics, and, and there at Cherokee Nation, you folks have a, a really good grasp on who's fluent and who's semi-fluent. And I think, again, of just so many tribes, well over 500 tribes uh, across the United States, and and that's not even thinking of of indigenous uh, communities in uh, South America and up in Canada, but... Um, you know, there's just such a wide range of fluency amongst tribes. And I'm wondering, do you think most tribes are knowledgeable about how many fluent speakers they have? And is there any, like, uh, kind of uh, agreed-upon way of keeping track of that? Well, you know, you make a a, a real good observation uh, with European contact. They estimate there's what 350 uh, languages here in the United States, and now I believe we last I heard we had 115, and 79 of them are um, are really really in danger. In the next couple of decades, if something doesn't really really happen, uh, we could lose up to 79 of our our indigenous languages. So um, every tribe does things a little different. Um, as for us, um, we were still in disbelief that we lose our language just until just recent years. Uh, and what what helped that is we we started doing um, kind of a community awareness, and uh, we did some community readiness. We did some focus groups. Uh, we broke down uh, our our nation and different demographics and ask them questions just to find out, okay, how do you activate uh, the different demographics of, of our nation for language revitalization? And one of the things that came out of that is that uh, when Cherokees knew that their language was dying, um, they immediately started acting different in them, in them groups and the focus groups. And so it was clear that 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 our our folks did not did not know that their language is dying. So one of the things we've done was a speaker role where we brought up, we got a book and, and did archival paper and, and um, um, printed it a certain way, glued it together a certain way so it lasts um, several centuries. 
and you know uh, did a non um, uh, a certain type of ink and that sort of thing to sign it, saying, "Okay, this is you know this is non-acid paper and this sort of thing. Sign this. This is going to last 500 years, and we'll give you a medallion and that sort of thing." Our speakers started coming out to to sign that. I know um, our last meeting we had over 600 speakers in one location, and that was the first time that many Cherokee speakers gathered together since they stood in a ring to vote against Oklahoma statehood in the, in the wow. early 1900s. So um, <laughs> bringing that together uh, to prove it, we had to prove to our public that we would lose it. And when that happened, uh, it changed it changed our public's perspective, and they started rallying around uh, what was happening uh-huh. in the language department. So. Okay. Well, Howard, we've only got time for just one more question before we're going to have to wrap up the show, about another minute. But if you could just, I'd like to ask you, what do you think is the biggest threat currently to keeping native languages thriving? Biggest threat, if you just answer that in about a minute. Well, the, the biggest threat is our is our own people. Uh, would you start uh, if you if you have a Cherokee or if you have you know a whatever tribe it is that becomes totally colonized uh, and they they are able to steal your voice and uh, speak for you, and although they don't have the heart of our our elders, they don't have the heart of our language, uh, then. Somewhere along in your in your tribe, you've introduced the cancer that uh, that can kill your your language, your tribe, and everything about who you are as a people. And so, um, it's keeping that out is uh, our biggest goal. Okay. Well, folks, I'm sorry that's all the time we have for today's show, but I do want to thank my guests, Anna Luisa Danio, Howard Payton, and Cheney Bell for an enlightening conversation, and we applaud them for their efforts to increase awareness and preservation of Native American languages. And just because the show is over doesn't mean the discussion has to end too. It continues online at NativeAmericaCalling.com. You can also connect through Facebook at Native America Calling and chime in on Twitter at one 800 native I'm back tomorrow with another awesome live show. We'll be touching in with the creators of a new public TV series called Indigigenius. We hope to hear from you then. I'm Sean Spruce. Ah, let's go halt. Chopi's dem had me let's out. Chuckle tells him so as to sequel suchen so casems yet twa utsu ukwint chishet. Chuimit insurekidsnow.gov. Upin chuckle tells him 1 877 kids now. Colnout to me chuckle tells him so as skelly such mariam yet sachem. Chuimit healthcare.gov. Uhaj chuckle tells him 1 800 318 2596. Colnout to me. Yet's memeet in centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. 
Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.